Welcome back, ladies and gents, to this week's episode of the Pop Punk Project. I'm Keenan, And I'm Mike. Mike, can I actually start this episode with uh, something I saw in the news this morning? Sure, Keenan. Please, indulge me. This is pretty wild, but someone actually broke into the local Taco Bell in the middle of the night, ate all the food. Do you know who it was? Who was it? The cops don't know, but it was someone. Some farty one. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, Chuck. What did you think of that, Mike? That was a very specific, uh, specifically tailored joke, Keenan. I love it. Yes, it was, Mike. I made it just for this, uh, just for this special occasion. Did you get that from your pop punk joke book? I did, yeah. I have, uh, (laughs) six volumes of it, so. (laughs) Fantastic. In honor of that flatulent Fallon Keenan, we (laughs) thought it might be... We thought it might be fun to discuss Sum 41's third album this week. What's it called again? (laughs) Some guy's name, right? Yeah, I think it was Chuck, Mike. Ah, yes, that's it, Chuck. We actually didn't know we were doing that until I made that joke, and now because of that, we're going to be doing Chuck. (laughs) Okay, enough of that. Let's stage dive in. Released on October 12th of 2004, Chuck is the third studio album by Sum 41. That always kind of blows my mind, Mike, because they don't consider Half Hour of Power as their first album. That was technically an EP, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it confuses me, too, because... It seems like a full-length album, though. Right, because this album is only like a half hour long, so I wonder why they decided to categorize them like that, but who knows? During the recording of this album, the band is composed of the same members that we saw on All Killer No Filler, but it would be the band's final album with their classic lineup, and that is Derek Wibley, Jason Cohn McCaslin, Steve Yach, and Dave Bash. The lead guitarist, Dave Bash, actually left Sum 41 on May 11, 2006, a couple years after this release, to pursue his career with his own band, Brown Brigade, but would later return in 2015, Mike. As previously discussed, Steve Yach, the drummer, also left the band a little bit later in 2013, and he now works as a realtor, believe it or not. Yeah, I remember we came upon that last time. Pretty interesting. Yeah. And I don't know, man. I'm glad Dave found his way back to the band. Maybe Steve will one day as well. Who knows? Oh, I hope so. The album proved to be a pretty successful release, Keenan. It peaked at number two on the Canadian album charts and at number 10 on the U.S. Billboard 200 making it the band's highest-charting album at the time. It would go on to sell over 5 million copies worldwide and won the group a Juno Award for Rock Album of the Year in 2005. I gotta admit, I was a little surprised to learn that it was their highest-charting album at the time. Because I just assumed that All Killer No Filler and Disease Look Infected were just more popular. At least I thought they had more worldwide fan appeal. Yeah, especially off of singles like Fat Lip and In Too Deep, you would think that tons of people just went out and bought that CD at the time. But I don't think this ever actually made it to platinum status in the U.S., and it was surpassed eventually by their next release, Underclass Hero. Yeah, it's fascinating. 
October of the year 2004. What in the world's going on here, Mike? Right off the bat, Keenan, October 1st, Shark Tale premieres in the U.S. <laughs> wow, that's a big start to the month. It surely is. And a DreamWorks movie we haven't discussed yet, I don't think. I don't think so either, which is kind of shocking because I feel like we've discussed every other one. Yeah. But this one was, you know, fish, a bunch of fish, Will Smith, Angelina Jolie, a bunch of other of your favorite <laughs> actors and actresses. <laughs> Did you not even look up who's in it? <laughs> I just gave you the two top billings. What more do you want? Yeah, that's true. Um, <laughs> wasn't this the third installment of Finding Nemo? Yeah. Finding Nemo, <laughs> Finding Dory, and Shark Tale. Yeah. It was uh, Finding Nemo the third you know what this reminds me of? This was never a movie that I really watched, but I remember when I was a counselor at camp, this was one of the movies we had, and we would just play it for the kids on rainy days. Oh, so you've seen it, like, I've parts seen it of it pieces. so many times. Yeah, in between just taking kids to the bathroom or falling asleep, like, you know, when you kind of shut your eyes and you doze off a little bit. Oh, yeah, of course. Well, at one point, we should actually sit down and watch it, Mike. We'll pencil it in. I'd be down for that. On October 8th, Martha Stewart begins her five-month incarceration at Federal Prison Camp Alderson for insider training and obstruction of justice. Man, talk about a real gangster, Martha Stewart. <laughs> That's for sure. <laughs> this was all over the place at the time. This was a huge story. Yeah. This was just one of those interest pieces that, I don't know, people do this stuff all the time, but... Because it was Martha Stewart, it was more interesting, I guess. Do you think they were just trying to make an example of somebody? So they picked her? Possibly. It kind of reminds me of, more recently, like the school ad admittance scandal with Lori Laughlin and, oh, yeah. and um, you know, rich celebrities' kids getting into school. Yeah, like wrong place, wrong time, and they want to make a high-profile statement about something. Yeah, exactly. It's like, I really don't care. That doesn't affect me. I don't think... Having Martha Stewart off the street made the world safer, but <laughs> I guess it technically is illegal. So five months, uh, I guess she did the time that fit the crime, right? Yeah, I guess so. It's kind of wild. That's a blemish on the old CV, but it seems like she has no problem getting these uh, television, fashion, home... Bullshit? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> What do you call that? Like, uh, I don't just, know. She has like, like cooking. Home and Garden, and... HGTV, all yeah, that stuff. Yeah, all that stuff. I feel like she's still on TV all the time, isn't she? Yeah. I mean, wow. I can't confirm because I haven't watched her personally. But yeah, you still see her around when you're flipping through channels, trying to hawk different pieces of crap at your <laughs> mom. <laughs> I guess they just let anybody on TV these days. Yeah. Good for her for making that comeback. On October 20th, in the American League Championship Series, the Boston Red Sox, who had come back from an 0-3 deficit, beat the New York Yankees four games to three. And one week later, Keenan, on October 27th, the Red Sox completed a four-game sweep of the St. Louis Cardinals to win their first title since 1918, breaking the curse of the Bambino. Wow! I remember that being a pretty huge deal. The curse of the Bambino? What do you remember about that? Pretty huge deal, Keenan. So the Red Sox had traded Babe Ruth to the Yankees for a minuscule return. And from that time on, they never won a World Series. And obviously, 
the Yankees went on to win, I think, 26 at the time that this series was played. So it was a really big deal for them to come back and beat them in the ALCS, but then to go on and win the World Series was just cherry on top, you know? When Babe Ruth was traded to the Yankees from the Red Sox, was he really good then or was he still kind of young and still developing as a player? Like, did they get rid of a really good player and that's why it was such a big deal? No, I think he probably was a good player, but they probably didn't realize that he would go on to become one of, if not the best baseball player of all time. Or else they definitely wouldn't have traded him. Right. And I could be making this up, but I really don't think they... I think they just traded him for some cash. They just had to get him off their roster or something like that. Oh, wow. Yeah. So it was like, I guess that's a curse. I don't know. The, <laughs> the baseball curse. Well, they didn't win like, for a long time, so... They didn't win for a long time, which has to be frustrating, especially going back in the past. You know, you have that famous play, and I think the... 85 World Series where the ground ball goes between Bill Buckner's leg. Oh, yeah. And they end up losing that one when that would have been, uh, you know, that would have been the curse breaker. But since 2004, they've won a couple more. So they must have really obliterated that curse. Yeah. With this big win. Screw that curse, Mike. Here we go. Huge segment. Celebrity weddings. Cue that theme song, Mike. <laughs> Do you want, should I sing it? Do I, yeah, I you sing it every week now. <laughs> <laughs> celebrity weddings celebrity weddings oh celebrity weddings that was i feel like every time you do it it's a little bit different but a little bit better practice makes perfect that was your best yet <laughs> thank you thank you very much Ooh, that sounded thank you thank you very much yeah you're just elvis now yeah all right on october 5th professional golfer tiger woods who's 28 at the time weds former swedish model Elin Nordegren, who is 24, they subsequently were divorced in 2010. And I think we all heard uh, one too many details about that divorce, Mike. That's true, Ken. I don't remember this wedding, but I do certainly remember <laughs> <laughs> the unraveling of this relationship. Yeah. yeah, we saw it really crumble to pieces. That Tiger Woods documentary on HBO is one that I want to get to because apparently it does a pretty good job examining his life at the time. and. He was on top of the world, and it was kind of crazy that he just uh, really liked the ladies. Yeah. And uh, lots of them, so he couldn't contain himself. Just the other day, my roommate, Tyler Baudo, big shout out, Baudo. Baudo. <laughs> Baudo. <laughs> he was reading the risque text messages that Tiger was sending to his mistresses, and uh, <laughs> boy, were they steamy, Mike. I'm sure they were steamy. I'm sure he had, he spits mad game. Oh, yeah. Tons of game. And not only mad game, but he was sending these texts at like 11 a.m. on a Tuesday. And <laughs> they were they were graphic. So, yeah. <laughs> One thing is like you're Tiger Woods. All you really have to say is like, hey, I'm Tiger Woods. Like, yeah. You want to see my bank account? Yeah. Why don't you come over and I'll spend a ton of money like giving you a nice night. It's probably all he did. I mean, yeah. With some added. uh Details. Yeah. Added incentives there. <laughs> and on October 30th, Keenan, very relevant for our interest here, Blink-182 drummer Travis Barker weds actress and first runner-up Miss USA in 1995. That's a mouthful. <laughs> Shayna Mokler. They, as we know, were divorced in 2008. 
So Yeah, we saw that one play out too, unfortunately. But they did have a good run. They were, well, actually, I guess it's not that great of a run, but they were featured in that reality TV show, right? Where it followed them around with uh, Travis's young sons. That's right, yeah. If you consider that a success story. <laughs> For these celebrities, if you crack like two years, we got to at least, you know, give you a nice pat on the back. That's true. And we have discussed before, it was the time when if you were a celebrity of any interest whatsoever, you could probably get your own TV show on one of these networks if you wanted to. So. Yeah, we have a good string of these celebrity reality TV shows going. Yeah. That was a good one, though. I remember watching that one. It was pretty interesting. Yeah, it was interesting just because I actually kind of was interested in the guy, yeah. I guess. And I love that he dressed his son up to look exactly like him with like a mohawk and cutoffs and yeah it was pretty awesome yeah the the cutoff tees that were just like the very very deep armholes yeah yeah that would just go down like so you could see his tummy through yep. the armholes exactly <laughs> those are great as of this recording travis barker's involves with chloe kardashian really yeah well that's news to me kind of crazy right yeah a little weird actually like talk about two different worlds yeah I only know this because there was that picture that kind of made the rounds on the internet of Travis Barker and Khloe Kardashian kissing and Megan Fox and Machine Gun Kelly kissing Mm. at, I think it was the VMAs. I think Travis Barker and MGK performed one of their songs there. Yeah, they definitely did. Yep. Um, But yeah, I was like, who's that chick? And I was like, oh, Khloe Kardashian. That's uh, good luck to you. But um. (laughs) Yeah, that's so random to me. Kind of toxic. And here we go, Mike. Celebrity deaths. Mm. Go ahead. Cue it. The Undertaker theme? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Celebrity deaths. We're so sad these celebrities died. (laughs) You actually remember the lyrics. That's exactly what you did last week. (laughs) I know. I just edited last week's episode. Okay. I didn't think you'd actually remember it. (laughs) (laughs) All right. That's great. Good work. Thanks. On October 10th, Mike, get the giggles out. Time to be serious. Yeah, this one this one is uh, legit uh, tragic. Yeah. Christopher Reeve, American actor, he was Superman back in the day. Mm-hmm. He dies of an adverse reaction to an antibiotic at 52. He was, what, I think he was a quadriplegic, right? After a, an accident on a horse? It was a horse riding accident? Mm-hmm. Yeah, he was um, already disabled and apparently it had adverse reactions to different medications throughout his life and it was one of those weird deaths where it was like a a toxology report that was kind of inconclusive but his wife or girlfriend forgive me i don't remember which she was saying you know this makes sense he's had these bad reactions to things before so oh wow that's sad i didn't realize that's how he died i just thought it was complications of his you know very difficult life yeah i thought it was complications and i also uh for being 14 or so at the time i thought he was much older like when you look back on these deaths and it's like he was 52 i'm like i could have sworn he was like 85 and died of having a a hard enough life as it was so yeah same thing october 19th keenan this one's this one's a little bit of a trickaroo Ooh. so i was using my favorite site on this day.com great website and I saw that Elliot Smith, my favorite singer of all time, died on this day, October 19th, 2004. And 
A day or two later, I was driving in the car and I decided to put on some Elliot Smith after reading this fun fact or sad fact, I guess. And I, you know, Googled him or whatever, looked at his Wikipedia page and I saw October 19th, 2003. Whoa, wait a minute. A whole year off. What's going on here? So I looked it up and it's one of those things that I've always known. Like, yeah, he died in 2003 because his last album came out in... 2002 and his uh posthumous release came out in late 2003 so it was like right after his death so i knew that so i tweeted at on this day.com and asked them to make this correction on our behalf did they do it N- not yet oh. but at least they didn't respond maybe they'll just update it under cover of darkness out of the shame they feel yeah shame on you i was gonna go in and correct it myself but i had to give all my information and make a login so i Decided to just tweet at them instead. <laughs> you also have to at least publicly shame them. I hope this gets back to them and they understand that their words have consequences. And really, uh, there probably won't be too many because there are so many names on these death lists of like people you've never heard of. Oh, yeah. It just so happens that this one guy is like one of my favorite artists of all time. And I did further research on when he died. There's an open invitation. If anybody from onthisday.com wants to come on the podcast and issue a formal apology, you're more than welcome to. Similar to Christopher Reeve, the circumstances surrounding Elliot Smith's death are also interesting and um, up for debate, some might say. So, hmm. a story for another time, but inconclusive, open. What did they call it when it's like. Cold case? They haven't ruled it a suicide or a homicide. It's like an open investigation inconclusive i guess i guess yeah yeah i'm not really sure (laughs) i actually started reading his wikipedia page and i saw how long that section was and i was like all right i'm gonna come back to this once i'm done uh preparing for the podcast so we both listened to this album quite a bit back in the day do you remember most of the themes mike do you remember some of the background of it yeah as we touched on briefly last week keenan it's definitely some 41's most dark and mature album to date a lot of their previous stuff was you know lighter more upbeat more fun less of a serious tone this one was darker but for an understandable reason a lot happened during the recording and writing of this album most notably uh the band was influenced by the time they spent in the congo when a lot of stuff went down so that had a a big effect on the lyrics and the tone of this album. Yeah, I think it's safe to say that it's probably the most politically charged album that we've discussed so far. It might be one of the more politically charged albums that we ever discuss. Only one or two come to mind that might be more so. One being, I don't know, like Green Day's American Idiot. Mm-hmm, definitely. But it really does dive pretty deep into political, social, economic issues There are themes of, you know, war, depression, death, and ultimately who's responsible for those things. So those are topics that we almost never cover when we discuss, you know, the more upbeat pop punk albums that we've discussed to this point. Yeah, especially from a band like Sum 41, like, I would say this kind of came out of nowhere, but it's still one of my favorites by them. So I'm glad it ended up in this form that it took from their experience. Yeah, so you mentioned, Mike that most of this album was influenced by the time spent in the Democratic Republic of the Congo. And they were there 
filming a documentary, right? Do you know the whole story of why they were there and what happened and why it affected them in such a significant way? So they had taken a break from their touring and, and recording and all that to make a documentary for War Child Canada in the Congo. And it was called Rocked, Some 41 in Congo, and released by MTV. But while they were there, fighting broke out during the filming while they were in their hotel. I do kind of remember the story. They were essentially there on this investigative kind of peacekeeping mission, something like that. Obviously, they were filming it. And yeah, it was like there were shooting that was really far away. And then all of a sudden, they woke up one morning and it was getting closer and closer. And then didn't it just become this sort of panic situation? Yeah, so it was a civil war in the Congo. And one morning they woke up and there was just all this gunfire. And they were visited by UN peacekeepers pretty much telling them, like, don't worry, guys, everything's okay. Um, situation's under control. So they were thinking that they would be able to be evacuated from their hotel and return to safety somewhere else. When the gunfire just got worse and worse around their hotel, they did have to evacuate, but not under, like, calm conditions. And this guy, this UN peacekeeper, not just a guy, his name was Charles Chuck Pelletier. Wait, Mike, did you say Chuck? I did, Keenan. Chuck. Wow. He was actually super calm and in control and helped a ton of the residents of this hotel eventually get to safety, um, four of which were some 41, obviously the guys in the band at the time. He was pretty much just like that calm, clear voice uh, throughout all this chaos. And so the band reflects back on it and they were pretty certain they were going to die. They were like lying on the floor, pretending to be dead, like just literally hiding wherever they could. And this guy Chuck was there just giving them the guidance they needed to help them eventually evacuate to safety. Did you see this documentary back in the day? No, I never did. I would like to check it out. It would have been a good thing to have watched for this album, wouldn't it have? <laughs> no, I, I, I like you uh, just reciting what you read from Wikipedia. I think that made way more sense. It's definitely more uh, concise. Yeah, it is. The only reason I said that was because I did see it back in the day. I didn't rewatch it for the podcast either, but... I watched it several times, you know, when this album came out. I watched it a few times in the years preceding that. Um, it was pretty intense. I mean, you see these guys who are essentially fighting for their life, and they're terrified. And it was a struggle, and it was a close call. And this guy, Chuck, led not only them, but a humongous group of people to safety because he was super experienced and knew how to handle the situation. So... This is why they named the album Chuck. It was essentially a thank you to him and a shout out to him for saving their lives. Yeah, they wanted to honor him in some way. And naming their album after him seemed the most appropriate way to do so. I guess they were pretty much as close to war as a pop punk band could get. So, you know, that came out in the writing process once they got back and really got to work on putting together their, their next album. You know, they had some stuff done already, but the majority of the stuff that they still had to write and, and record was heavily influenced by their experience there. So what was your experience with the album? I want to say this was the first Sum 41 CD that I bought. I had heard All Killer, No Filler, 
does this look infected? And those were, I think, burned for me. Mm. And this was the first, like, new release that they were putting out when I was already a fan. I don't think I was a, a fan that went to the store to buy the first two CDs that they, they came out. But as soon as this one was released, I was at Best Buy in line to get my copy of Chuck. And um, Best Buy or FYE? Didn't you work at FYE? Not when I was 14. <laughs> oh, I thought maybe. Best Buy. <laughs> Best Buy and actually Barnes & Noble were my main uh, oh, yeah. CD Barnes spots back in the day. That's right. Sometimes FYE. But yeah, so this was like the first uh, hard copy physical Sum 41 CD with booklet that I got. And um, it was on heavy rotation for me for most of the end of middle school and high school. And it kind of felt like it matured as I was maturing, like their sound kind of matured as we were coming of age. And a lot of the songs really uh, hit me hard back in the day. So one that I like to visit very frequently. And I guess we should mention that my good friend, uh, Sean Yakel is actually the person that originally requested that we take a look back at this album. So that's right. Shouts to Sean as well. Thanks, Sean. This was a good one. Yeah, I was the same way, actually. This was an album that came out during the height of my Sum 41 phase. And I don't know if you remember me back in the day, Mike. I'm sure you do. But Sum 41 was my favorite band from, like, you know, late middle school through most of high school. If you ask me who my favorite pop punk band was then, 10 times out of 10, it was Sum 41. So I remember listening to the earlier albums and same exact thing, going out, buying the album and... This is one where I used to literally listen to it going to bed every night for months. And then I'd wake up and get on the bus with you in high school and I'd listen to it on the bus. Like I just listened to it over and over again. So yeah. this is one I was excited to listen to because out of all the albums so far, I knew these songs like the back of my hand, front to back, most of the lyrics, most of the themes. It was all still very fresh to me, even though I haven't listened to it front to back in quite a while. So yeah, I think for you and me both, this is one that... We both know fairly well. If I had to name a favorite Sum 41 album, I think All Killer No Filler is an easy go-to just because of the the history that those songs have had over the years. But I think my favorite of all time might be this one, actually. Really? Wow. Yeah. Like, consistently, the one I return to the most for, like you said, for, like, a complete listen, not just jumping around songs. I think yeah. this as a complete album is probably their best, in my opinion. Wow, interesting. Mine's Does This Look Infected, but we'll save that for another day. Maybe our episode on Does This Look Infected. Oh, that'd be a great time to discuss it. <laughs> Track number one, Intro. Intro, very appropriate title, Keenan. Why is that? It's the intro track. Oh, okay, cool. 
It's way more boring than <laughs> the opening track on All Killer No Filler. Yeah. Which is like a spooky uh, poem to the devil. Yeah. But I do think that this one nicely sets the tone for the album. It's like puts you in the mood that this is going to be a different sound that you might be expecting from these guys and let her rip. First of all, it's worth mentioning that, as you alluded to, they do love doing this. They've done it on two of their previous albums, and I think they probably do it on future albums. But I do think there's kind of a cool crescendo to it, though, isn't there? Like, mm-hmm. it's kind of eerie, it's kind of ominous, and then it just builds, 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 and then all of a sudden, track number two hits. Right. Track number two, No Reason. as we said mike booming start to the album and this is the real introduction to their really heavy sound it's almost more metal sounding like the instruments are that much heavier that you could mistake parts of this for like a metal song and the vocals are more aggressive the drumming's more aggressive it's just like this totally different sum 41 sound that we're not used to yeah it's heavier vocally heavier musically and and thematically right yeah and thematically it's just mad all around like you can just feel this mad intensity brewing that it's like all right this is just gonna be no bubblegum radio tracks on this one i mean you know granted a couple did end up being pretty successful singles but well those are like slower songs but there's not really any like poppy songs where in the past they've had like several poppy songs in their albums. There's not a whole lot of those in this album. Yeah, you wouldn't hear any of these at a frat party. No, (laughs) no, not at all. Well, the ones I went to, you would, but yeah, not the ones most (laughs) frat stars go to. Yeah, the ones you would want to go to, you would hear. Yeah, for sure. The Sum 41 deep cuts. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. But going back to the theme, Mike, this kind of darker theme, this gave off the sense of just feeling hopeless in a world that's deteriorating around you. And it's easy to see where their motivation was for that theme because we know the backstory of the Congo. We know that they were stuck in this war-torn country as things were literally and physically crumbling around them. So this song brings to light that feeling of just being hopeless and pathetic, doesn't it? Yeah, I was thinking this was an appropriate song with lyrics to start the album because it really takes a big picture look at society and kind of comes to the conclusion that people aren't willing to unite for a common good uh we're selfish we're set in our ways and unwilling to accept change and as i say keenan when we all fall down it will be too late yeah that's exactly right
but yeah, it doesn't even have to be necessarily about war in the Congo, as I think you were starting to kind of mention. I think they are talking about all the broader issues in the world. It could be, you know, whatever, global warming, world hunger, um, even today's day and age, like think about COVID and the pandemic. I think they're looking at just how bad everything is and how people aren't willing to work together to make things better. It's all sort of contained in this song. That's the feeling I get. Right. It's funny how it's still appropriate in today's world, unfortunately, but just that frustration you feel of seeing people not being able to get on the same page and feeling like you really have little effect over what ultimately comes of that. So what I think is kind of cool, Mike, and you spoke about a similar lyric, but I love that they're asking, why can't we change this? What's stopping us? And there's the line, why is there no reason we can't change when we all fall down? Who will take the blame? Which is a little bit different than the one you mentioned. Mm -hmm. But doesn't that seem like a good lead into the next song, which is we're all to blame? It does. For the first time ever, I actually saw a connection from this one to the next one. Yeah, actually, I never put that together either. But you're right. It does seem like from some 41's perspective, everybody's at least a little bit guilty in uh, these transgressions that they are trying to explore on this album. And there was a music video for this one, right? As their fourth single. What was that all about, Mike? Yeah, this is the fourth single. And I realized this was the first single that I came to in reviewing this album and the first video I watched. And I had no recollection of Derek's hair during this time. It was <laughs> oh, like, yeah. This was like his emo hair phase. Yeah, it's like jet black, like moppy emo hair. And yeah. I always remember him with his blonde with pink streaks, uh, spiky hair. So yeah, obviously didn't watch these music videos as many times as I did their older ones, but the entire band just had a different look through Chuck. They were all just like grungier, angstier. Like there was a lot of like earth tones. They were just a different band. It seemed. Yeah. And this one was just them playing the song live. Except with a weird twist, right? There was, a, there was a very weird twist. It was like a girl just kept climbing on them and humping all of them. Yeah, as they were performing, yeah. Yeah. Like she would just go from one band member to another and just dry hump them. So, Do you know who that was? Pretty cool. Yeah, <laughs> no, very is, that cool. A not is that a notable person? There were two famous actresses in this music video. One of them I recognized right away and the other one I was pretty sure it was her, but I had to look it up. So the blonde girl who's climbing on stage humping them is Jenny McCarthy. Okay, wow, I didn't put that together. And then the brunette who's in the crowd, like, judging this girl is Carmen Electra. Okay, that did look familiar, but yeah. I didn't do any further research. Oh, oh you didn't recognize Carmen Electra, okay. We have, we, we've discussed before <laughs> I had a thing for Carmen Electra, so. Yeah, I thought you'd be all over this one. I was so shocked by Derek's hair, I guess I just kind of blacked <laughs> out for the rest of it. And just how weird the music video was that the whole theme was just some girl, like, essentially raping them on stage. Honestly, it was like they were just playing the song and I'm like, great, three minutes of this. And then it was like, whoa, what's going on? Yeah. And then I think I just kind of must have missed my girl Carmen. So I was so confused as to what these cameos were that I had to look it up. And it turns out that this song was featured in a movie at the time called Dirty Love, which starred Jenny McCarthy and Carmen Electra. So this was like some promo shoot, some music video that was for that movie, which came out the following year. Gotcha. So like how Bouncing Off the Walls was heavily featured in Van Wilder and thus Ryan Reynolds and right. Tara Reid were in that video. Seems like the exact same situation, yeah. 
not a bad uh, cross promotion to work with Jenny McCarthy and Carmen Electra. Not bad at all, Mike. <laughs> Track number three, we're all to blame. And as I said, Mike, it feels like this song is answering the questions that were raised in No Reason. It's like, who's to blame? We're all to blame. Each of us has a hand in all these bad things that are going on around us. Yeah, that's right, Keenan. Um, I guess we are all a little bit responsible. This was the first single, and I remember this being the first song that any of us heard from this album. And I remember you and Tom getting so excited about this song and like, how hard it rocked. Oh, yeah. And the beginning was like, I don't know actually what's happening, but it kind of sounds like somebody's like taking a crap. <laughs> like, do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. Wait, like, like the, oh, when they're talking. Yeah. yeah. Oh, we singing? <laughs> yeah. And like, I remember hearing that for the first time and thinking like, oh, damn, these guys are so cool. They are so cool. Yeah. What a fun way to introduce this uh, first single of the album. Are we singing? Before we discuss the themes even more, Mike, this is a way different sounding song than we're used to. I think even compared to No Reason, which is just heavier, this one has all sorts of like tempo and speed changes. It goes from really soft and slow to all of a sudden really aggressive and powerful. And it's just not something that they really have done before. And so I think we were both shocked and excited and also just kind of pumped up to hear something so totally different. Absolutely. There was something about this song that reminded me of the previous Sum 41 album we discussed. Do you want to hear what I found out about this one? Yeah, I'd love to. I found this fascinating. So Derek said that the song is about war, death, fear, corporate power, and other concerns, which is like vague, but thank you, Derek. Um, <laughs> it was written after the band's trip to the Congo, and it was actually the last song written for Chuck. Oh, last song written, first song released reminded me of Fat Lip. Yep. Yeah. Off of All Killer, No Filler. So. Oh, that's so cool. Kind of curious they did that again. Their most recent song on the books was the one they thought was the most powerful for their lead single. Do you feel like they just work better under pressure, like they're notorious procrastinators and it just happens to work out for them every time? They could. And in this case, especially, they probably wrote the song and were like, this is probably the most important song we've ever written to date just yeah. because of what it represented. So they wanted to make sure that people listened to it. So yeah, good call. Cause we definitely did for sure. In addition to the obvious connections to their trip overseas in the Congo, they also just have like more general, 
like anti-government, anti-politics. Uh, there's a lot of that to it. And if you remember, Mike, like 2004, we haven't discussed a lot of albums that were that late into the 2000s yet. Most of the albums have been like, you know, early 2000s. This was like the height of the war on terror. And so I think that was also a big part of why they made this song, why they made this album. It was like that anti-military belief that we were starting to see in the broader community, in broader society. You remember those feelings of like, you know, anti the war in Iraq, anti the war in Afghanistan. Yeah, it was kind of like the turning point of post 9-11 when a couple years had gone by, there had been all of this patriotism right off the bat, like we got to figure out who did this and go give them justice or whatever, to the point where it's like a lot of the stuff that we kind of started these wars over seems like it's maybe i'm mainly thinking of weapons of mass destruction that was the big like buzzword at the time and people are thinking like we haven't found anything yet like are we actually looking for these do they actually exist and there was a lot of just confusion about what was going on in these wars and then just the constant everyday people were dying and it was just like people kind of turned that passion and patriotism i guess and kind of flipped it on its on its head where it's like are we the bad guys yeah are we the problem yeah after all yeah and i'm not necessarily sure how canada what they were dealing with during all this well they're allies for life you know but oh yeah for life baby but i mean they were obviously living and spending a lot of time in the u.s so i think it was more of like anti-us rhetoric than anti-canada rhetoric but it all sort of blends together and there was one line, Mike, that kind of stood out that I assumed was political in nature. It was, stand to salute, say thanks to the man of the year. And I wanted to ask you, I don't want to put you on the spot, but do you have any idea who they're referring to as the man of the year? My initial reaction back in 2004, and to this day, I always thought like the obvious answer was George W. Bush. Yeah. Um, as you know the most prominent person in the world at the time, I guess. But I did do a little bit of research because, at least in my mind, they were alluding to Time Magazine's Person of the Year. You know, every year they give the award for man, woman, or person, or group of the year. Right. And so I was curious to see this record was released in October 2004. This song was the last to be written, so probably late summer of 2004. George W. Bush was the man of the year in 2004, or person of the year in 2004. Really? Yes, but it wasn't announced until December of 2004. Whoa. So this album would have already been two months old by the time Time Magazine made that announcement. So you're telling me Sum 41 can tell the future? I'm telling you they probably had a pretty good idea who (laughs) the person of the year was going to be as... um. Bush was headed towards re-election. The wars were raging and on multiple fronts, and they obviously were not fans of it. I did look to see who 2003's Person of the Year was to see if possibly Bush like did a back-to-back, and he didn't. Do you know who the 2003 Person of the Year was? I literally just looked it up, and it's the American Soldier. Yeah. Dude. Which would still apply to this line. Yeah, it would. But um, that's crazy. So it could be either. I think they're probably talking about the American soldier. That's insane. Yeah. And it's like 
the line is like standing to salute, we say thanks to the man of the year. So it's 100%. like, yeah, military. Like, you know, you salute a service member and say, thank you for your service. And they're turning it into like a more cynical line of like, oh, thanks. You know, thanks for everything you're doing, which is like, I don't know. It's crazy at that time, like retrospect, like 20 years later, like I think everybody kind of agrees, like the men and women that fought these wars had good intentions and were just trying to do what they thought was best for their country in 2004 to if some 41 is in fact saying like thanks a lot soldiers i feel like that's kind of crazy you know so yeah it is but that's why i always thought it was bush because he was the easy target i think as a band some 41 was trying to push the envelope a little bit so i mean either way if it's a backhanded line about either the president or the american soldier i think you know they're both provocative they're both controversial but i think that's just what they were going for yeah definitely they were just kind of pissed off at the state of things so and i gotta say mike there is kind of a weird doppelganger that i noticed mm. i wonder if you would hear the same thing but this sum 41 song reminds me a lot of a system of a down song one that also has a lot of tempo changes has a lot of soft to loud slow to fast it's the song chop suey ah chop suey that's a good one it is a good one, but isn't it kind of strange how they sound so similar, kind of going in and out from slow to fast? Like, listen to We're All to Blame real quick. And then listen to Chop Suey. I can hear the guitar is very similar in my mind. And then, like you said, the fastest slow place, like, like, it's kind of like little jolts. Yeah. And the cool thing is back in the day during those years, I was also a humongous fan of System of a Down. So I was hearing, you know, the System of Down songs. I was hearing Sum 41 songs. And in my brain, just making all these connections. But I do hear a lot of similarities between the two, which is so crazy because they're two totally different bands. Yeah, this was uh, totally different, but this was a real heyday for System of a Down, too. For sure, yeah. That would be a band that I would really like to, you know, have a comeback. Oh, yeah, that'd be amazing. And then there was a music video. This music video for the serious nature of the song was pretty goofy, Keenan. <laughs> it was very goofy, Mike. <laughs> it was like a spoof of... I'm thinking like the Lawrence Welk show, like those 70s or 80s variety shows where there's just like live music being played and people dancing and whatnot. 
I think it was more a spoof of like those workout shows, like those workout VHS tapes. Yeah, that could <laughs> the be. The people in like leotards doing choreographed dances. Uh, do you mean the Solid Gold Dancers? <laughs> yeah, that's right. The Solid Gold Dancers. Yeah, yeah. So the program was called Solid Gold. Was that an actual program? Yeah, in the music video. Oh, I, I'm curious if it was actually one in real life. I doubt it. Oh, okay. I don't know. Maybe. <laughs> I'd never heard of it, but I feel like if it were big enough for them to spoof, I probably would have heard of it, right? Is that fair? Yeah, that's a fair point. But so it's the band and then these Solid Gold Dancers and... The dancers are very good visual comedy throughout the length of this music video. Oh, yeah. They're fantastic. Especially some of the faces they make is is very amusing. So take they're a look. so over the top. Yeah. Take a look for yourself. And uh, Derek still has his jet black hair. So <laughs> obviously this wasn't really one that I watched. I guess I'll say that for, for all of these. But Track number four, Angels with Dirty Faces. This is where, Mike, I think the album starts going from more of a heavy sound to just a dark sound. And I think a lot of it has to do with the theme of the song. What do you think? Hard agree there, Keenan. What'd you say? Hard agree. Oh, hard agree. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know if you saw this the same way, but this one I felt like was more of a personal song, maybe from Derek's perspective, than like shrink it down from a global song to more of a what's going on in your own little world kind of deal. Yeah. And I think the reason for that is because this song seems to be about drug and alcohol addiction, right? And as we know, Derek Wibley had a very public struggle with drugs and alcohol and had this really bad rock bottom moment where he was in the hospital with liver and kidney failure and had to come out of that and was really, really sick and weak for a while, but did end up coming back as the front man of some 41. So yeah, I think you're right. I think this was his own struggle with drugs and alcohol probably. Yeah. And the part about this song in general, Keenan, is I think it really obviously comes from a place of personal perspective because it does such a good job of like putting yourself in the mindset of like a person in active addiction, like in the throes of addiction. The intro says it best, in my opinion, I need this to get me through, can't resist, don't want to. Believe it, I know it's true, can't beat it, don't want to try. So it's like, you know you're addicted to this thing, and you don't even care if you are addicted to it. Like, you understand, like, alright, I'm addicted, so what? Like, fuck it. And that's like that um hopeless, helpless place that I kind of was thrown into when I listened to this, which was like, pretty heavy, like coming off of... uh. I guess another heavy song, but still, I wasn't expecting that turn. Yeah, it's more of like a personal heaviness, like a personal demon that you have to deal with as opposed to a demon that everybody has to deal with. So I'm I'm actually happy that you did some digging on earlier songs, Mike, and you were uncovering some tidbits we didn't know before, because this song, I actually did some digging. And the reason I was digging was because 
it's one of the only songs in the album where Angels with Dirty Faces is not mentioned in the song anywhere. It's not one of the lyrics. And I was really confused by that. And I was trying to figure out what that meant. Mm -hmm. So I finally just Googled it. I was like, what is this reference to? And there was actually a 1938 gangster film called Angels with Dirty Faces that starred James Cagney and Humphrey Bogart. And it was essentially about this gangster who couldn't get out of a life of crime and just kept falling deeper and deeper into it. And he eventually died a coward in an electric chair. So, you know, he basically Man. hit rock bottom. Spoiler. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> if you haven't seen thinking, it by now, like. I was thinking like, man, this sounds like a good ass movie. It's apparently, I'd never heard of it, but it's apparently listed as like one of the greatest films of all time, which is insane. I obviously I knew the line from the title of this song. One of Green Day's songs has a line about angels with dirty faces and Humphrey Bogart and James Cagney. Those were you know, two of the biggest stars of their day. So makes sense. Yeah, but I think the main character in this movie is just like, he's just trapped in this life of just crime and terribleness. And I feel like that's what Derek's trying to say is being addicted is just being sucked into this world that you can't get out of. So I thought that was a cool parallel. It turns out it's also a song by an English punk band named Sham 69. So I don't know, <laughs> is it a reference to the movie or the, this uh, British punk band song? Not sure. I think it's probably a reference to the movie because, like, that description of, like, just digging yourself deeper into a life of crime, I feel like this song's just showing that you're, you don't really have a choice but to just continue down this terrible path that you're on because you don't really think anybody's there to help you. So it's like. Exactly. You've reached that point where it's like, might as well just, uh, you know, keep doing what, what I got to do, I guess, if this is what I got to do. I also read that. In Home Alone, that gangster movie that he's watching where it's like, Merry Christmas and a Happy yeah, New Year yeah, and he yeah. shoots him. It's a reference to Angels with Dirty Faces. Ah, okay. It's like a spoof of that. Isn't that gotcha. kind of cool? That is cool. Yeah. Wow. That is a cool fun fact, Keenan. <laughs> yeah. I thought so too, Mike. <laughs> Two fun facts on the same track. Track number five, Some Say. This is the third single, Keenan, and we don't have to do too much digging on what this one's about because Wibbly himself in the past has said that this song is about your very, very, very confused parents. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Which is so funny because they've said it at concerts. I think they've sent it at interviews. They've been very open about what the song's about, but I actually had no idea what it was about. I just thought it was kind of a slightly feel-good song in a bunch of heavy, dark songs. But, yeah, it's about parents not understanding their kids. Yeah, I never listened to this and thought total parent diss track, but rereading all the lines, it really does fit. It's like the big brother of all the Simple Plan parent diss tracks. It's like the more mature version where it's like no longer a teenager, now it's a like a 20-something-year-old, and they're mad at their parents, too, for the way that they've portrayed the world and the way that they think that 
you know, you should grow up to be when that's not who you really want to be. Yeah, it's totally a more developed version of that theme. It's, you know, these young adults who want more independence, realizing that this beautiful picture that their parents have been painting for years is not the real picture of what's going on around them. It really made me think about that perception of when you were young, parents and adults having it all figured out. Like, you know, when we were younger, Mike, our parents had, you know, two or three kids when they were in their early 20s, mid 20s. And we were just like, oh, everything they say is gold and they know what's right all the time. And then you grow up a little bit and you're like, they were just kind of faking it like we were. And now we're their age and we're like, oh my God, like, did they really understand what was going on? Because I have no idea what's going on. Yeah, I know we've talked about it before, like the imposter syndrome and just faking it till you make it. Yeah. And then I wonder, like, you know, my parents are in their 60s now and I still go to them for advice and I still think that they know more than me. Like, are they still faking it? <laughs> uh, yeah, I think they're just at a different level. It's like a video game. They've leveled up to just faking <laughs> it a little bit less than us yeah. now. They're just getting better at it. Yeah. And uh, being a dad, especially, it's like now that Jack is, you know, two, almost two and a half, it's like, oh, wow, like I'm responsible for his life and I need to nurture him and teach him things and make sure he doesn't turn out to be an asshole. Yeah. And there's a lot of stuff that I still don't know that I'm trying to figure out. And I just have to keep it cool for his sake. That's what I wanted to ask you. Did you have a different perception of just being a parent, watching yourself do it compared to watching your parents do it? Not yet. Cause I don't remember how my parents were when I was like two years old, I guess. Like I remember how they were when I was like five or six, if that makes sense. Yeah. It's actually funny because as we previously mentioned, my wife's expecting our second kid. Uh, we found out that it is a boy, baby boy number two. Let's go. Boys, and, boys, um, boys, 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 boys. <laughs> boys rule. But my mom has told me this story before. And um, you had mentioned that your parents were in their early 20s. My parents actually didn't have me till they were around my age. So like around 30. Oh, so, I didn't know that. Yeah. They had waited like five or six years after they got married. Because I guess they wanted kids, but they weren't positive. Boy, was that a mistake. Well, that's <laughs> funny you should mention that because my mom has said when she was pregnant with me, like pretty pregnant, and they were on vacation in Disney World, she just started crying out to dinner, which, oh. um, you know, could have been the hormones. But she said to my dad, we can never let this baby know what a mistake this has been. Oh, oh my We should God. have never done this. <laughs> what? Really? Yeah, and my dad is like, Jesus. you know my dad, like, just, like, nice guy, like, what the hell are you talking about? <laughs> yeah. And she's like, things will just never be the same again. And my dad said, oh, man, maybe they'll be better. And she was like, no, <laughs> she got all emotional. <laughs> so, Damn. thankfully, they've told me this story, so I think they've come around on my whole existence. Are you sure you want this on the record, Mike? This is some pretty uh, heavy stuff. Nah, it's all good now, like. You know, they're still my parents. They still love me. <laughs> That's the heavy stuff that life throws at you sometimes where yeah, it's like, you're right. I can't handle this. Like, I can't be a parent. And then it's like, you know, you figure it out. And I didn't know any better. I thought they were great. Yeah. They might have been terrified. So that's like a little peek inside of like, sometimes our parents are uh, human and they are vulnerable. Well, that's what I think this song is getting at is it's the realization you hit that age where you finally notice that your parents are human. And they can make mistakes too. And I think that's what they're saying is parents are usually right, but in a lot of cases, 
they don't quite understand what we're going through as young adults. It's an interesting take. Yeah, absolutely. Tell me about the music video. So this music video is simple, but I kind of thought it was interesting, Keenan. The band is in a car and they exit the car and start playing on kind of like a soundstage while different scenes occur around them. I think a lot of the scenes kind of relate to growing up. There's a scene of a barbecue, a scene of some kids playing hula hoop outside, a scene of just a kid chilling in his room. And um, at the end of the video, soldiers rush in and begin to evacuate people, which I thought maybe that was a reference to their time in the Congo. Were they evacuating them or were they like pestering them? I couldn't quite figure that out. I like the evacuation, though. That makes a lot more sense, given what we know. Yeah, it seemed like they were trying to rush them off the set. And then I think they were trying to rush the other people off the set and then pester the band members. Oh, yeah, that makes sense. But I don't know. Um, Oh, and then there was also a scene of like, I guess, for lack of a better term, like a white trash mom just sitting on the couch, which... I think was Derek just in a blonde wig, if I'm not mistaken. <laughs> yeah, you're right. I do remember him dressing up like a woman, yeah. Yeah. It was hot. And that kind of shows me, like, this false sense of reality sometimes. Ideal, perfect parents is outside at a barbecue, and everybody's having a good time and putting on a good show, and real life is, like, in your room while your parents are just watching TV, neglecting you. <laughs> yeah. It shows the dual realities that we see in life sometimes yeah it was cool track number six the bitter end I would argue this is probably the heaviest song on the album, and it might even be the heaviest Sum 41 song ever. I think it's the heaviest song on the album. You would know more about their entire catalog than I would, but I'll take your word for it because this song is heavy. It has sick guitar solos, a sick bridge. It's like a really good pump-up song. If you didn't know it was Sum 41, I don't think that you would guess that this was Sum 41, if that makes sense. What's really cool, what comes out in this song is you can hear a lot of their influences. And in addition to like the old school punk bands in like the SoCal scene, a lot of guys in the band, especially Dave, the lead guitarist, was influenced by metal bands, like 80s, 90s metal bands like Metallica, Iron Maiden. And if you really listen to this song and you listen to a little bit of Metallica and Iron Maiden, they're very similar. Mm -hmm. In fact, I think this song has even been compared to a Metallica song called Battery. They're pretty similar sounding structurally and musically. And this is just one of the scenarios where those influences come out. But I think it's probably the most obvious instance of that. Yeah, a lot of the metal music of the 80s kind of relates to that theme of like hell and like this darkness or whatever. And this one carries that same theme. It's like, where will you be at the bitter end? Are you going to hell? Did you get that same idea? Like, yeah, your actions in this life will have consequences in the next, which is like the kind of religious theme that we see in a lot of these heavier metal bands. 
Yeah. Not only is it the heaviest song on the album, but I think it could be one of the heaviest thematically too, because it's, as you've mentioned, it's acknowledging the inevitability of death. And I think the flip side of that is they're also saying, don't waste your limited time that you have basically being a dick. It's like, don't be an asshole in this life or else you're going to pay for it in the afterlife, which you're right, is definitely more of like a metal theme than a pop punk theme. But it's cool that they want to touch that. And this is the album to do it. A lot of these songs are really short, sweet, hard hitting tracks. I think we mentioned earlier, the album itself is only like 33 minutes. And this song is one of the shorter ones. But um, it packs a punch, man. Track number seven, Open Your Eyes. This has always been actually one of my favorite songs on the album. Definitely not my favorite, but it's usually in the top three when I listen to the album. I love the way it starts with just the, it just starts with lyrics, if that makes sense. And like a cool, like, yeah, like a cool sound. That that sounds so (laughs) That's really cool, Mike. If you listen to if you listen to it. So cool. If you listen to it, you know exactly what I mean. It's the lyrics and yeah. <laughs> I think that's like the double bass pedal. Yeah, I think that might be what you're referring to, but I'm not positive. Yeah. I gotta say, um, I don't actually have a historical favorite on this album, but this has always been one of the tracks that stood out to me too, Keenan. Is this your favorite or is it just one of your favorites? No, it's not. I'm oh, saying okay. it's not my favorite. It's also not my historical favorite because my favorite's been like the same one since I first listened to the album. So. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, I think this one is like, it's not as heavy and dark as the others. Like the theme might be still kind of dark, but it's slightly more upbeat you know what i mean like it sounds a little bit more like an old sum 41 song the theme itself is about at least what i thought was about is just lying to yourself pretending everything's okay when things are clearly not okay and i was thinking it could be about maybe addiction again it could be about these broader social issues that they bring up but i really thought it was potentially about a relationship i think it kind of is a combination of the two like addiction and a relationship whoa i think it's two people that are dealing with their vices and just happen to be together Mm. um because the chorus says this isn't me this isn't you this is just what we put each other through so it's like they're putting each other through hell with these decisions they're making and you know they're under the influence of whatever so it's not the real them but it ends up being the real them you know like whoa yeah whatever you're actually doing becomes your reality 
so that's like the relationship part. But it was um, actually the first time it ever dawned on me, like the first opening couple lines really hit me for the first time as like, oh, like, I think this is directly referring to like addiction because there's a line, maybe I do need some help, which is like admitting you have a problem. Yeah. And then the next line is, don't you regret you met me? Go through these steps to get me back to where we start before I fall apart. And I always thought that that was referencing like retracing your steps, finding where things went wrong in a relationship. Oh, yeah. But rereading it, I'm thinking like, go through these steps to get me back to where we start. He could be referring to like a 12 step program. Oh, that's interesting. He's literally going through rehab or 12 step programs trying to get off whatever he's on and fix what's wrong with their relationship that's been made worse by whatever they're involved with. Yeah, whichever it is, addiction relationship, I just love how he paints this picture of it's like you're living in this dream world and you're creating this illusion for yourself and you're pretending that everything's okay and you just keep lying to yourself. And he's literally talking about the inability to wake up and escape it. He's saying, just open your eyes. It's almost as if he's saying, wake up and smell the roses. Like, you need to make a change. So, mm-hmm. I don't know. I thought it was cool. It was just a different way of explaining something that's been talked about time and time again. Yeah. Track number eight, Slipping Away. This one is a total change of pace from the rest of the album. Yeah, I've always loved this one, too. It's like, I guess, the slowest song on the album, right? Yeah, slowest, softest, definitely. I also think this is, in my opinion, the saddest song on the album. All the other stuff aside that's pretty sad, like bad relationships, addictions, war, all that stuff. This one always hit me really hard because... It's kind of just about slipping away and just being in this depression, but not really understanding why and not knowing what you can do to fix it. You're just tired all the time and you don't really know how to get better. And that always made me feel like, damn, this is really sad. Well, I think for a teenager listening to this, it's probably the most relatable theme. I mean, as middle schoolers and teenagers, we weren't totally attuned to what was going on in the world around us. We didn't know anything about addiction back then. We didn't really know a whole lot about death, but I think we could relate a little bit to depression, feeling lonely, the struggle just to get through a day. That was stuff that was actually kind of real to us. So maybe that's why we gravitate towards this. This one maybe hit a little bit harder than the others. Yeah. And it reminded me what we talked about last week with Avril when she had a couple songs where we kind of felt like when you're in that relationship or when you know somebody and you want to try to make them feel better or help them cheer up and it's like, They want the exact same thing. They just kind of can't really do it. It's like this 
yeah, obviously I don't want to be depressed. I just don't know what I can do right now to, to shake this. So that frustration. And anybody saying that they know how to help you is oftentimes just going to make things worse. It's in vain. Yeah. The way that I looked at this, listening to it this time around, Mike, I thought this song might have been a reaction to all the previous songs. Like you're so weighed down by those incredible burdens from the previous songs about, you know, war, death, addiction. And now this is like you're hitting rock bottom and all you can do is just slip away. Like you just don't want to think about those things. You're feeling helpless. This is like being totally deflated. It's Yeah. I'm just laughing because as soon as you said that, I just thought of certain times in your life when you just feel such an overwhelming pressure. Like you have so much on your plate, so much you have to get done. And the only thing you can bring yourself to do is just like take a nap yeah, and just like fall asleep. Yeah. Have you had those moments where you're oh, yeah. so stressed out that you just pass out? You just like and, close like, everything and you're like, oh, I'm done with this. You literally do yeah. nothing when you have so much to do. Yeah. Yeah. Or like you wake up and it's dark and you're like, well, shit, I was supposed to do everything tonight, but I guess now it's three in the morning and I'll just go back to sleep. Yeah. It felt like those days in high school when it was like you would get home from school and you had so much work and it'd be really late and you're just like, I just don't do any of this and you just pass out. Yeah. Track number nine, I'm Not the One. Always love the intro to this song, Mike. Such a great buildup, such a cool drop. It's a great buildup into like a really like tough. Like it, this is a tough first verse. <laughs> they say a curse word in this song. Ooh, that was a pretty big deal for me back in the day. Which one was it? So we live in times with shit we don't need. Well, maybe it's the price of envy. Yeah, it's a big one. Yeah, remember I was like, oh, they said shit. So I thought in this song, they were taking a really cynical view of the world, which let's be honest for them is pretty on brand at this point, but <laughs> True. you're just realizing that no matter how much you care, or how hard you try, nothing in society will ever change. And the people around you are going to continue to not help. And they're just going to continue to suck. Yeah. I got the kind of exact same feeling as you did. It's like every man for himself and what can I do anyway? So fuck it, I'm I'm in this for me, and I'm trying to save my skin. Good luck. I'll go one further and say that he's seeing like the people around him actually giving up and accepting their fate, and mm. he's basically saying, like, yeah, I'm on my own, but I'm also not going to do what you guys are doing. I'm not going to be the one who gives up. He's literally saying, I'm not the one to just roll over 
and accept my fate. I'm going to do something about it. So I don't know. I thought it was kind of cool. It was like this sort of powerful moment for him. It is like that self-will trying to overcome what seems like the world just being against you or the world literally just swallowing people whole. It's like he sees that happening all around him and he just doesn't want that to be him. Yeah. It also felt like a little bit like a call to arms, didn't it? This message of just continue to fight the power. And if you guys aren't going to do it, I'll still continue to do it. I don't know. It was just this very like aggressive song and I liked it. Really angry, but like angry with the purpose. Right. And I think the best part of the song, I'll actually go on record and say it's probably my favorite part of the album is that crazy like multi-part bridge. Yeah. Like he's screaming, just take the rest of, take the best of me. It's like, it doesn't sound like some 41. Well, the bridge has like a progression to it, which is so cool. It starts off almost like an old school, does this look infected some 41 song. Like I was hearing a lot of still waiting in it, which the bridge mm. and still waiting has this really aggressive build to it. And it's really cool. And then it breaks down into this super heavy metal guitar riff, which actually sounded a lot like it could have been in like a Slipknot song. That's how heavy it was. Mm -hmm. It was so just over the top aggressive, but it was amazing. And then it transitions into this almost Linkin Park sound. And his singing sounds so much like Linkin Park. Oh, dude, you're right. Isn't that crazy? Like, they hit all these different sounds, but they're all just as cool as the one before it. Yeah. Wow, I can definitely hear Linkin Park in that. And I gotta say, I love Linkin Park too, so like, makes sense why I really thought the bridge kicks ass. Yeah, not only the bridge, but there have been actual multiple songs in this album where people have made connections to Linkin Park in the past. Like, his vocals, the way that the drums and guitar come together, it just has kind of this Linkin Park vibe to it, which, Mm. yeah, like you said, Linkin Park's always been great. So, yeah, something about this bridge has always stood out to me. It's pretty incredible. It also, well, right before the bridge is also my tattoo line. Really? Yeah. Ooh, let's get some ink, Mike. This is one of my, probably would I get it tattooed in real life? No, but I do actually think it's a cool line. It's not a jokey line like last week's tattoo line was. Wait, did you say, eh, we don't need to go back to it, but did you say your body part last week? I don't think you did. We're rusty. Oh, no, we didn't. Yeah, um, that's not great. I don't know. We took six or seven months off. Just That's fine. Underneath my foot. Cool. Well, I did go into detail that it was going to be cereal in a milk bowl. That's right. So maybe like a shoulder blade or something. Okay, cool. Anywho, how'd it come to this miserable bliss? Whoa, miserable bliss. Or rather, 
how'd it come to this miserable bliss? Mm, there you go. That's more accurate. Pretty badass line, honestly. Probably would get that, like, maybe, like, down my forearm, like, along the vein. Oh, yeah. That's yeah. a good one. Yeah. That's a good spot. So you can always see it and remind yourself how terrible everything is around you. The yeah. miserable bliss. Dude, but that miserable bliss just hit hard, like, the classic Orwellian society of, like, Everything sucks, but who cares because we're staring at our phone and we just don't even really notice. Yeah, damn. It's a heavy one. But badass. Track number 10, Welcome to Hell. (laughs) Getting a little bit lighter here. (laughs) (laughs) It's a nice refreshing change of pace here, Mike. Uh, Finally come up for some air with Welcome to Hell. They do have one of these types of songs on every album, Mike, and we discussed it before in All Killer No Filler. It's the short, fast-paced, hard-hitting song that kind of comes and goes pretty quickly. Mm. I think usually it's maybe a minute long. I think usually it's actually under a minute. This one is a little bit longer than that, but it has that old-school Sum 41 feel. Like This sounds like it could have been a song that was on Half Hour of Power, which I loved. It's it's just old Sum 41. It's funny. I never really would have thought that it would have fit more with an older album but that does make sense like i can see where on all killer no filler it's like this would be the song that they would throw in there that was just for them yeah it's in my opinion one that's just a quick like ex-friend ex-girlfriend ex-boyfriend whatever you're done with their baggage and their problems and uh yeah you're just done like that's the extent of it really yeah i thought it could have been addressing the people in the song that we just listened to, I'm Not the One, or the people in We're All to Blame. Mm. You're addressing those people who are basically messing everything up. And you're saying, oh, you're running out of time to actually make a difference. And it's almost they're like sticking it to them. It's like, oh, I hate to say I told you so, but I was right all along. Right. And more allusions to heaven and hell. When your angels turn to devils, you'll finally figure out that no one will be with you in the end. So you think you're this good and genuine person and you find out that you're actually a piece of crap and um (laughs) yeah welcome to hell (laughs) (laughs) can i tell you what this actually reminds me of mike sure do you remember their web series back in the day called road to ruin man like i'm sure i saw it but there's no way i remember it okay (laughs) to the extent of detail that you do i remember it because i was obsessed with it tommy and i (laughs) used to watch (laughs) them together back in the day and i think we discussed that when we had uh, Tom Mackle on the show, but they had like a 10 part web series. It was actually hilarious. Derek and Steve used to host it. Their intro, they used to say, welcome to the first online show ever. And it debuted in like 2007. (laughs) It was not the first online show ever, but that's just how they like promoted it, which is hilarious. But 
it was essentially these like five minute, seven minute long YouTube shows. I think it was actually on their website, but they were essentially like okay. YouTube shows. And it was behind the scenes content from shows. It was them in hotel rooms, like breaking stuff, destroying their green room before shows. It was just all these like crazy band behind the scenes antics that would happen. And this song was the theme song for it. So anytime I hear this, I just think about oh, cool. like the crazy stuff that they used to just do. Breaking stuff, breaking yeah, lamps. Exactly. And nice. out of all the bands that we cover and all the bands that I knew back then, they were actually known for getting really drunk before and after shows and just causing a ruckus. And if you have the chance, I think you should go back and watch them because they're really funny. And I think <laughs> there's one episode that was actually episode two or three, mm-hmm. and it was called like Welcome Home Chuck or something. And it was Chuck visiting them on tour and like partying with them and him drinking and he turned out to be like this crazy party animal oh man <laughs> he was like featured in this ridiculous web series this straight laced uh un peacekeeper is actually <laughs> the party keeper yeah exactly that's awesome yeah no i don't think there was anything bad about him but i think it was just him like letting loose with the guys and it was oh yeah yeah fun. yeah yeah you know people love that shit yeah totally i'm sure there's some great uh grainy versions of this on youtube so i I will need to check that out oh i can confirm there's a youtube video that's one through ten all together it's like an hour long and it's great content awesome yeah maybe we'll throw that in the show notes for y'all hey at least the chuck episode yeah track number 11 pieces reese's pieces Mm. no just pieces This is the second single, Keenan, and my favorite song. Oh, it's your favorite? Yep. Oh, look at you, picking a single. I know. Second mm. single, too. Wow, that's embarrassing. It was one that I always liked back in the day, and um, gotta stay true to who I've always been. It's a slower song, but I always liked the message that it carried, and um, of all the music videos, I watched this one the most frequently. So when I think of this album, this is the first song I think of. When you talk about the message that you liked, so the band actually has gone on record and they've done interviews. And I think it was actually Steve Yach who said, pieces is about a relationship, but not necessarily one with a girl. Maybe you're better left alone. Fuck everybody else. That's literally a quote for them, which is pretty sweet. (laughs) And so when I read that quote, I thought, oh, so if it's not about a relationship with another person, then it must be about your relationship with yourself. And it reminded me of that old saying, You have to love yourself before you can love others. Thank God that uh, applies to what I've always related this song back to is like, sometimes it's okay if like you feel out of place as long as you're trying to be true to yourself and do what you feel is best for you. And that message has always come throughout the song. Just I'm better off alone. 
sometimes you just have to work on yourself before you can even begin to try to help somebody else work on themselves, you know? Yeah. I think it's about the importance of overcoming your own insecurities, not always trying to appease or to please others, not conforming to what the people around you want you to be or how they think you should act. Especially in relation to this album, Mike, there's all this conflict with all these outside forces like, you know, war and drugs and all this stuff that's going on, things that you typically can't control. And I think this is Derek or the band's realization that there's people out there that just don't act and feel the way that you do, and it's okay to be different. My favorite line on this album, and probably, I mean, it always has been, but in re-listening to it, it still was my favorite line. That opening line, I tried to be perfect, but nothing was worth it. I don't believe it makes me real. So it's like, you can try to fake it all you want, but if you have a moral conflict with who you think you have to be, you know, if that's at odds with who you know you are, you're not going to get anywhere. Like, you need to be authentic to yourself if you want to accomplish anything in life. Yeah. Worthwhile, at least. Not fake and BS. Yeah, it's a powerful message. One question I did have, Mike, is it's called Pieces, but they don't actually say Pieces in the song. Do you have any thoughts on why that's the title? Honestly, I've never thought too much about it, but this is what I think of when I think of Pieces. Do you remember that book? It was like a big deal back in around this time. It was called A Million Little Pieces. Yeah, of course. So I never read it. Uh, I'm pretty sure it was like in Oprah's book club. So like probably everybody read it. They parried it on South Park with Tally. Yeah. That's mainly how I, I know of it. <laughs> but I, So cultured. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I just I think his was called A Million Little Fibers. Oh, nice. But uh, so I just pulled up the Wikipedia and. So A Million Little Pieces was a book by James Fry, originally sold as a memoir and later remarketed as a semi-fictional novel that followed, oh, due to forgery accusations. Anyway, <laughs> <laughs> that wasn't about, I thought oh, that was what it was about. Dude, you know what's so funny? What? I literally watched an episode of It's Always Sunny. <laughs> it's where Dennis makes the sexual memoirs, but half of them are made up. The entire time, Charlie's like, dude, you don't want to be like that guy from Million Little Pieces. Like, we got to make sure you back these up. <laughs> That's so funny. <laughs> I thought it was going to be a description of the book, but it's actually just saying that he uh, he forged it. Oh, damn. But anyway, A Million Little Pieces tells the story of a 23-year-old alcoholic and abuser of other drugs and how he copes with rehabilitation in a 12-steps-oriented treatment center. Oh. So... I don't know. Kind of ironic, right? Like That's interesting. I don't know. I can't see Derek as a guy that would read that book and be like, this speaks to me. But who knows? That's where my mind went. Well, what does the title of that book mean? Is it like you're trying to put all these little pieces of yourself back together? Because if that's the case, then maybe that's what Derek's saying. He's like trying to put these pieces together to make himself whole. And that's him trying to understand and to love himself. I think that could be it. That's interesting. It's like you're Humpty Dumpty and yeah. um, putting yourself back all together. the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't do it. So you got to do it for yourself. <laughs> right, man. That's yeah. That analysis touched a lot of different pieces. <laughs> Whoa, no pun intended. Oh, man. <laughs> and there's still a music video, too. Oh, yeah. How's the music video? The music video. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so this was actually my favorite music video by far. Honestly, the only one I remember watching back in the day. The guys said that they wanted to make like a funny video without being like too goofy because it is a serious subject. 
But it's Derek walking along some empty streets and trucks drive by him. It's kind of like trucks with advertisements. Like one panel of the truck is clear with a scene, like a diorama inside. Yeah. And each one has a description written underneath. They include the perfect vacation, the perfect night, the perfect family, and the perfect body. And different members of the band are in these scenes where it kind of depicts what society deems the ideal, the acceptable, the desirable reality for all these things. Like, have the perfect family, have the perfect body, have the perfect wedding and wife and husband and whatever. And Derek is just kind of walking along looking at them and realizing that maybe that's not his ideal. At least that's the perspective I get. The video ends with Derek in his own truck and he's just sitting there by himself and as the truck drives by we see it says underneath it the perfect life and um, the F falls off so it ends up being the perfect lie. Whoa. Yeah. Wasn't that accidental too? Yeah, which I never even realized, but they said when they were filming it, the F just happened to fall off, and it just really fit, so they left it. That's insane to me that that wasn't thought out beforehand. Seems so perfect, because it's like saying two things. Maybe his perfect life isn't everybody else's perfect life, but he's trying to do what makes him happy. And the lie is like, you know, don't lie to yourself. Not everything's perfect 100% of the time. Like, it's okay to have things screwed up from time to time and whatever. Yeah. And it relates to the song because it's all about just doing your own thing and loving, respecting yourself and not caring what other people think or what other people are doing. Track number 12, There's No Solution. This one, Mike, is both my historical favorite, and I'm going to go ahead and stick to my guns here. It's still my favorite. Nice, Keenan. Cool. So we both have our historical and current favorites are the same songs this week. Yeah. Not with each other's, but for ourselves. For ourselves, yeah. Which I think is good. I'm just trying to be my own man, you know? I love it, man. I love it. I try to be perfect, but nothing was worth it, you know? <laughs> well, you know, there's no solution to that, Keenan. <laughs> there you go. But... A quick, funny tidbit about this song. I used to love this song back in the day. And I feel like most people would not consider this their favorite song from the album. I think this is actually probably more of a deeper track compared to the others. Definitely. And I made, I don't know if you remember this, but I basically forced the guys in the Gummy Bear Warriors, our middle school band, to play this song at one of the birthday parties that we performed at. And mm. nobody was really happy about it except for me. <laughs> but I insisted upon it. I think we all got like one song that we could just pick. It was like our, our right. trump card. And we say, okay, I just, we're all going to play this song. It's one I want. And then we agreed on other songs. And I was like, this is the one I want. And they're like, oh, fine. Nobody wanted to play it. Man. Yeah. And you got to sing it, right? I did. Yeah. It was great. Yeah. 
Maybe that's why they didn't want to play it. They're like, Keenan sucks. He can't sing well, the song. Well, if that was the case, then they probably would have hated every song because I sucked it's singing every song. out of song. his range. This is out of his range. <laughs> uh, every song was out of my range, Mike. Nah, man. You were um, you were the good lead singer. Thanks, buddy. It was more about my presence than my vocals. If you went to those Going Bear Warriors shows back in the day, it looks like the um, Carmen Electra, Jenny McCarthy music video oh yeah it was incredible all the girls are just all over you constantly had to fight them off <laughs> nice i respect the deep cut as the favorite track after i went with the single so reversal of course this week little flippy floppy there mike yeah what is it that made it your favorite what is it that like kind of drove it up the charts for you well it had to be just the music it had to be the feeling of the song because i gotta be honest I didn't really know what it was about, and I actually still mm. don't really know. I think out of all the songs in this album, this was the hardest one to decipher. I don't know if you agree with that or not. Yeah, I do. It's pretty vague. It's like, add your own interpretation, I guess. I just kind of went with uh, not wanting to waste your time on somebody anymore, possibly a relationship, but I don't know. Just seeing where something is going and kind of like your future is crystal clear and it's like, you don't want it to come true, but you don't really know what to do to avoid it, I guess. Yeah. But that sounds vague, too. Like, that description sounds really vague, so I don't know. I think that's the most you can get out of it, because it is kind of vague. But I actually read through the lyrics probably eight or nine times, and I listened to the song mm-hmm. probably eight or nine times, because I really wanted to figure out what it was about. Because, again, it's my favorite song, so I was like, how could I like this song and not even know what it was about? Sure. Uh, But I don't know if this is the right interpretation, but... I was starting to get the feeling that this could be about an abusive relationship. Mm. And the reason why was because I got this sense that there's this distinct struggle between thinking you love somebody, but also hating them and trying to escape. Like you mentioned, there was this like confusion, right? You got this sense of, oh, the answer should be so simple, but it's not that simple. And all I could think of was, oh, well, what types of relationships are like that? Abusive ones where you love, but also hate somebody. In those types of relationships, your options are like, oh, you either stay there and continue being abused or you leave somebody that you think you might love who you've invested all this time and energy into. So I think that's why it feels like there's quote unquote no solution for it. You're just kind of stuck in it. I can definitely see that. I can see that feeling coming through. And like a lot of the times when there is like some sort of abusive relationship, it's like easy from an outside observer to like make up their mind about. This is what you should do. This is no problem. Easy decision here. When you're the one that's in the middle of it, it's like maybe you you don't even see clearly. You don't even think clearly. It's like, I don't know. Like it, this feels good sometimes. Why does it feel awful other times? Yeah. And I don't. And know. nobody from the outside knows the full story. Exactly. Yeah. So that's why I thought it could be about that. I was. It all just kind of came together to me and I was like, this could be it. This could be what it's about. I also felt like the bridge in this, it was like the one part of the song where it was really just kind of building and empowering. And I think he's realizing that the solution once and for all is just to leave this person. Mm. You're the only one that's actually giving them this power. So remove yourself from the situation. I think it's like his realization that this is the one way out. So I don't know. Cool. It was a cool song. That is funny because the line is, is my own confusion reality or fiction am i out of my mind and that's kind of how i feel after <laughs> after listening know, to this song trying to figure out this song yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
why am I so confused listening to Sum 41 right now? <laughs> <laughs> why is it my favorite song? Dude, you were in an abusive relationship forcing the Gummy Bear Warriors to perform. I know. Your, your <laughs> I love the song. They hated the song. <laughs> yeah. Lead singer syndrome. Exactly. Yeah. Track number 88, 13. <laughs> oh, sorry, Mike. What I meant was <laughs> track Jesus. number 13, 88. A <laughs> classic mix-up, am I right? You blew that one, Keenan. Oh, man, I'm such an idiot. Oh, man. Take this aggravation that I've thrown myself into. Change this situation just cause I need something new. And still I feel like a prisoner trapped inside this broken world. Well, I'm playing the victim again, running in circles. I thought this was yet another example of them experimenting with different tempos, different speeds. They go from fast to slow, soft to loud. This is another sort of abstract kind of out there types of songs. Yeah. Did you read what I read that the title 88 actually just refers to the tempo of 88 BPM? Oh, is that true? Yeah. Oh, that's cool. I never knew so that. You're how'd just you, brilliant. How'd you figure that one out? Oh, I don't know. Did you count to 88? What are the rest of the I read a comment on a website. Oh, oh I'm sure that's 100% right then. <laughs> the title of the song refers to the tempo, 88 beats per minute. <laughs> Dude, you can't just trust the internet. They're all liars on the internet. Yeah, I believe them. I always thought that they were just really big Eric Lindros fans. Oh, love Eric Lindros. Oh, captain, my captain. That's right. This was always one of my, like, secret favorites. It was probably my um, There's No Solution. This was the one that I always listened to this one. Say I was on a car ride and I wasn't going to get to listen to the whole CD. I would skip to the end and listen to this track. I love the... It's cool. Yeah, it's a cool sounding song. I think it kind of ties the album together pretty nicely. It's like things still aren't good in this guy's life. He still feels like a prisoner trapped inside this broken world. And um, he feels like a victim running in circles, but he's kind of coming to terms with it. And there's that moment of clarity where he's like, you know what? I don't want your life to be miserable. I hope in the end you have it all. I don't know. Did you get a positive vibe off of that? Or am I like reading it the wrong way? Because it also could be like cynical again. I'm not sure. Yeah. No, I thought it was like maybe making the best of a bad situation. Yeah. Once I thought I figured out what There's No Solution was about, I kind of thought it could be a follow-up to that. Mm. If it's about a relationship, if it's about this, like, really bad, potentially abusive relationship, I thought he was saying, like, oh, you know what? I'm okay to move on. I once loved you. I can forgive you and forget about this, and we can go ahead and be our own people. Um, and maybe that's about this relationship, or maybe it's just about the world in general. Maybe he's saying, okay, I'll wash my hands of all this bad stuff, and I'll just go on and be the best person I can be, and the world can kind of go on spinning, I guess. Yeah. I don't know. I think it was a positive spin. Like, things are bad. I've accepted it. Now I can move on. Right. Good luck to you. Hope you have it all. Yeah, exactly. The way they end the song is awesome, too. Just, like, that screaming, like, 
I'm losing control. Yeah. We said it. Like, this album's, like, harder, heavier, and it's, like, they maintain that pace right up until the very end. Pretty cool, in my opinion. It's, like, a really kind of creepy, eerie way to end it. But, as you've mentioned, I think it actually defines the album in a lot of ways. I'm losing control. Like, think about all the chaos we just went through with all these different themes. Think about, like, the frustration, the angst. He's basically saying that I'm losing control. I can't handle this stuff anymore. It reminds me a lot of what we discussed with The Offspring. Like, it's kind of a cynical record. And the conclusion is, like, there is no solution. There's no resolution. Like, things are just going to be kind of bad for a while. And we're going to have to figure it out for ourselves. Yeah. Best of luck, I guess. Or see you in hell. Whatever, you know, comes first. So I know that you and I both loved this album back in the day, Mike. It was probably one of our favorites back then, even though it was really different than the contemporary pop punk albums of the time. I think it was enormously important for Sum 41 because it was more or less the peak of this slow build that they were on. Every album, they were just getting heavier and heavier. They started out as this traditional pop punk band in the late 90s, early 2000s. And then by the year 2004, they had this really heavy album in Chuck. And I think it was their heaviest yet and probably their heaviest to date. And then Dave left the band and all of a sudden they returned back to their more pop punk roots with Underclass Hero and the following album. So it was kind of a cool part in their own existence as a band. That return to form and Underclass Hero is accurate, Keenan. But I think on a bigger, grander scale, it was... Important for the genre, too. Like, bands could really kind of experiment with their sound and still come to find out that they could make a successful album. We've seen others do it since. Blink-182's self-titled album, Green Day's American Idiot, and Good Charlotte's The Chronicles of Life and Death. This was a time when bands with these traditional pop-punk sounds were experimenting and not really afraid to maybe release something that didn't sound like a typical record you might hear from them in an effort to stay fresh for their own sake. I do love that Sum 41 was able to experiment a little bit. It seems like they felt it was necessary to do it. They wanted to capture the feeling of the world around them at the time, and they channeled it into this album. And it was almost an obligation of theirs. They felt like this was important for them to do. They lived through this insane experience, and it's like, how do we explain what we saw here? It's like, let's do what we do best and put it to some music. You can kind of sense the social and political climate of the mid-2000s. It's like that uncertainty that kind of was unsettling for a lot of people at the time shines through in this release. Too far. 
Oh man, Mike, that one was pretty heavy. But I think we're better for listening to it. I think we're more mature, more enlightened people. I would agree, Keenan. I just hope next week's episode doesn't get any darker <laughs> or spookier than this week's was. No, there's no way, Mike. In fact, we're going to go ahead and lighten it up. For Halloween week, we'll be discussing My Chemical Romance's album, The Black Parade. You know, a nice light one. Keenan. That's exactly what I didn't want. That sounds even spookier than this album. Spooky. <laughs> uh, yeah, sorry, Mike, but tis the season, as they say. All right, well, I guess MCR is a pretty solid Halloween band, especially appropriate for next week's episode because it will be 15 years and a few days since that album came out in 2006. Huh, how about that? Yeah. It's a good thing we spent so many months planning this perfect occasion. <laughs> that's why we had to take all those months off. <laughs> this is the big event. If that doesn't scare you... <laughs> I like this. Let's continue with whatever this is. <laughs> if you're not busy changing your underpants from uh, pissing yourself over that scary news, check us out. Check us out online. <laughs> poppunkproject at gmail.com on Instagram and Twitter at poppunkproject patreon.com slash poppunkproject remember it's hoodie season get those hoodies from the web store oh that's right yeah it's cold out there I just want to sell like one hoodie and like five pairs of leggings I still want to buy mine oh the leggings the leggings are so <laughs> ridiculous somebody out there please just make our month and just buy a legging we would be so happy and it'd be so funny oh we should work on a beanie let's do a beanie oh beanie's perfect wait can we do a brim beanie see if they have it see if they have it I, I can almost guarantee you they don't but if they do then maybe I'll do a we can do a special release brim beanie yeah that would be so cool we'll like send out a order form and if you want one like we'll do a special order that'd be cool we should just talk to our yeah. sponsors about it they'll probably take care of it thanks to casper mattress <laughs> <laughs> just don't give them free publicity and Pay uh, us, cherries people. berries <laughs> <laughs> yeah. dude i want to sell out so bad thanks again for listening everybody as always we hope you've had the time of your lives or should i say the time of your deaths as some 41 said, as their plane departed the Congo, Keenan, good riddance. Oh, that was good. Thanks. Nice twist. Thanks.